Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 27th of November, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish. Delighted to be joined today by Alex Thompson from the Netherlands. And also we've got Mark Anderson from the United States. Well, we're going to kick straight off with Ukraine because Ukraine, if people are watching uh, legacy media, mainstream media, if you want to call it that, uh, Ukraine has been steadily slipping into the sidelines, into the long grass. Uh, and part of that is clearly things are not going well. So, Alex, let's bring you in. What have you got uh, to report? Perhaps the most influential newspaper in the whole of Europe, the German mass market tabloid Bilt, has revealed a shocker, although it's not a surprise to those who've been following closely. Um, so Bilt Zeitung's headline of last week is Schultz and Biden's strategy revealed. New secret plan for Ukraine. <coughs> the, the point of departure they take for this article is that in the middle of last week, the United States diplomatic representation to NATO headquarters in Brussels caused consternation and outrage among Ukraine and its Western allies, the most particularly cheerleading element of it, by saying, when the time is right, we're going to be nudging the Ukrainians to the negotiating table with the Kremlin. And our job now is to make sure that they have a maximized position, which is code for holding the front lines, which are causing them so many casualties and not attempt to push south and east back to the Russian border and the Black Sea respectively. Uh, now, the piece reveals that the German defence ministry, uh, led by Mr Pistorius, has been directly subordinated to Chancellor Schultz <coughs> since he took over as head of government from Angela Merkel. And the idea here is that the Ukrainians uh, will be given just enough resupplies of weapons by the two powers that count, that's Germany and the US, not Britain. Britain is a bit part player and is much better these days at starting wars than ending them. But uh, Washington and Berlin have agreed between them, let's not give them that many more uh, super weapons that will enable them to take the fight to the Russians, merely to hold the front line. Uh, the piece also says that the Americans are hoping that uh, Zelensky, quote, will of his own free will realize uh, he's going to be arm bent into it, uh, that he has to tell his people, face it, guys, the time has come for negotiations. But this has been uh, a theme for the past year and a half, getting on for two years of this war. The Kiev Post, which is a more establishment newspaper than the Kiev Independence, an English language title in uh, Ukraine, has the headline, and the information's not new, it's just that what's new is that it's being admitted by the Ukrainian press, is that Russia offered to end the war very early on, April 2022, if Ukraine scrapped its ambitions to join NATO. It's no, not just any old body saying this anymore. This is no, none less than David Akhramia, the Georgian-born uh, head of uh, President Zelensky's party, the servant of the People Party. He's given an interview to the Ukrainian mainstream media channel One Plus One, uh, to Natalia Moiseychuk. And uh, he's talked about this in, in some detail. Uh, before we get to a, a clip of the video, let's just see proof that this uh, this um, uh, negotiation exists. There it is on screen. This was flashed by President Putin at a recent meeting with the African Union. Details of the blog. Uh, it's, a, it's a very far right blog, but it does have a screenshot of this, which is why I'm including it in the show notes. Uh, shows that this, this was on the table. What were the negotiating positions? Well, uh, after a loose-lipped incident by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko this summer, who is a, a sort of ally of Putin in this, we know that the secret terms that Boris Johnson, on behalf of Britain, was negotiating in 2022 would be that uh, Ukraine would agree to Finlandize itself, not to join NATO, which would have required a constitutional amendment um, in return for um, uh, having Russia return the territories. So, of course, Russian nationalists like the blogger for whom I've taken that screenshot are perplexed by this and say, is the Kremlin that weak and prepared to betray ethnic Russians in the east of Ukraine? Be that as it may, uh, Akhramia has given uh, this admission to Moiseychuk. Here's the vital few seconds in which he says the war could have ended but for Boris Johnson. Ви більш підготовлені, бо вони зайшли насправді не підготовлені да, до такого супротиву. Тому на ми могли тільки працювати, коли є 100% впевненість, що це не повториться вдруге. А такої впевненості немає. Більш того, коли ми повернулися з Істанбулу, приїхав Борис Джонсон до Києва і сказав, що ми взагалі не будемо з ними нічого підписувати. 
і давайте будемо просто воювати. There it is from the horse's mouth, or rather the party boss's mouth. This has been said for months past by astute dissident uh, Western analysts like John J. Mearsheimer. One of his blogs saying, I told you so, will be in the show notes. Uh, we'll also put in the show notes Alex Kreiner, a very uh, keen observer of the scene for years, uh, pointing out that NATO's learned nothing in Ukraine and that the tub thumpers are still thumping the tubs in Western cities, Monaco in his case, saying we just need to give them more support. Built citing was saying the same. But really, Washington and Berlin at the top level have realized that it's time to sidle up to an increasingly unhinged from reality Zelensky and say, face it, chum, uh, you're not going to win this war or regain that territory. It would have been on the table if Ukraine had been prepared <laughs> to go back to the rule of pro-Russian oligarchs at the crucial stage. But in in fairness to the Ukrainians, they claim that after Bucha and Irpin, those massacres of uh, spring-summer 2022, anything like that was off the table. But the crucial fact remains, at the time, the war could have stopped, but for Boris Johnson. But fight on is what they do. So here's a screenshot from the Jimmy Dore show, which will be in the show notes. Just one of many examples that Russian language and Ukrainian language Telegram have found uh, of a, a sweetheart crooning to uh, Ukrainian troops. Average age in that picture, I don't know. I'll, I'll pass that one over to you, Brian. What do you think the average age of these troops in uniform, these are not veterans, but active troops, what, what would the average age be? Well, they've, they've got to be very late 30s, well into their 40s. And I have seen that actual uh, video clip. It is astonishing because clearly the men are not impressed to be where they are. They're all looking tired and depressed, and they're certainly not interested in the uh, the young lady singing. So they're older men. These are not frontline troops. Quite. Uh, I would agree with that. Uh, Turkey and Israel were the negotiators uh, mediating in the war. Um, negotiations uh, early last year, and they have both confirmed many of these details. Uh, the only thing that was really only uh, let slip by Lukashenko, if we believe him, because he's uh, he's a bit of a short, tenuous grasp on reality himself sometimes, but he is Putin's only real ally at head of state level, has suggested that the quid pro quo was, you know, um, uh, oligarch rule, pro-Russian rule in return for uh, the, the return of the territory. Um, meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal, not so connected with Washington's thinking as revealed in Built Zeitung, perhaps, has got this um, 1914 style reporting, you know, that tired Ukrainian troops are fighting to hold back the Russian offensive. And you'll be well aware, Brian, of the battalions slugging it out and, and uh, defying each other at the hottest point of the fighting on the, uh, the, the line of control. Uh, but uh, Russians are, are, are coming like zombies and the great Ukrainians managed to fight them off. At sea, it gets even more ridiculous. The Wall Street Journal, in its opinion section, has got a phrase just straight out of Britain's 1914 playbook. We used to say, plucky little Belgium is holding the line against Kaiser Bill. Now it's Kiev's plucky navy using missiles and drones to break the Black Sea blockade. Uh, and yet the piece itself admits that Ukraine doesn't have a navy. These are sure-fired missiles and drones uh, because that's all they have. Um, and yet the Black Sea continues to be strategically extremely important, as the build Zeitung at the lead of this segment also suggested. Uh, there's going to be some kind of Black Sea strategic involvement. The Turks are in a position to say no, of course, because their energy politics dictate that they will not upset the apple cart uh, supplying Russian cheap gas to Europe, where Europe pretends not to know of its Russian origins so as to uh, carry on the semblance of obeying its own sanctions. Finally, for me in this segment, uh, a caricature taken from two screenshots of Ukraine's current president facing the camera, the well-known meme uh, theme of how it started and how it's going. There is peacetime Zelensky in 2019, fresh from his acting career, and there is a very haggard one um, of Zelensky in a sweatshirt uh, with his uh, fighting gear on, uh, how it's going. Not so well for Zelensky. Uh, there is, of course, still a, a, another uh, element in the Ukrainian armed forces, particularly uh, General Zaluzhny and others, who may yet mount a coup. Uh, but they seem to be the more realistic faction. Zelensky is the one who's not being persuaded. And now we have even Americans and Germans at head of state level admitting this. <laughs> Uh, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, I'll just add a, a little bit, and I've uh, gone to the Kiev Independent that you've mentioned, but this was the headline, Ukraine's victory will send a message to all dictatorships, and this is the Ukrainian Ministry of, Ministry of Defence, 
Umarov. Uh, he was speaking to about 50 uh, representatives of uh, US, UK, NATO uh, at the time. I'm going to have to label this because fantasy land to say that uh, Ukraine is winning. And we clearly got part of the bunker mentality coming in. And of course, those uh, caricatures of Zelensky point to the fact he's looking particularly tired and haggard. But if we summarize a little bit um, of what you've covered, let's do it in some simple bullet points. So the first thing here is that Ukraine is losing on the battlefield. There is no doubt to this. They're short of ammunition. They're short of troops. They're short of vehicles. And uh, increasingly, uh, Russia is moving forward in critical areas, particularly around the fortified uh, town, small city of Avdivka. Um, we've got uh, Ukraine out of fighting men, and you've highlighted that. They're, they're still recruiting older men. They're bringing in very young uh, men, youngsters, I'm going to call them. And of course, they've been trying to recruit more women. Well, this is not going to uh, hold on the battlefront. Ukraine is broken as a state and is only functioning with the, with the financial support coming in from the Americans and uh, from UK and EU. Zelensky, as you said, is at war with the generals. Uh, but if we come in on the two big points, uh, the US, UK, EU and NATO itself are effectively out of ammunition. They haven't got stocks left in order to give Ukraine to fight at the level it has been fighting. So this is now restricting the Ukrainians. And if I just bring in the second point here, which is the key one uh, in the background of those, uh, is the pressure to get Zelensky into the peace discussions. And uh, uh, failing that, then clearly they're looking at regime change and Zelensky is going to be out. But um, this is a key thing, of course. Ukraine war is old hat. Gaza's the new exciting bloodshed for the US, UK and EU. And of course, that's where all the attention is going. And so that's uh, uh, really making it very difficult for Zelensky. But uh, before we leave Ukraine, let's just remember how things were. And somebody flagged up this um, uh, video clip, which is Hollywood pr uh, producer Oliver Stone talking about the biolabs while he was on Bill Mayer's uh, podcast. Let's have a look at this video clip. Maybe we'll never get there, but I feel like it's tipping toward lab leak and not bats. It's worse than that, I think. What, what are the labs in Ukraine? What, what is that about the American labs over there? As if we're dumping in Ukraine all the things that we... Wait, 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 all what, the what, what are you talking about, American labs? The labs that we have in Ukraine. All for? Those, for development of uh, research. Of what? On all kinds of research, agricultural. Uh, we have labs in Ukraine? We had. Had? Well, I don't know. They kind of buried it. Do you remember she admitted it? Newland admitted it? I only have a minute left. Let me ask you. Um, does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. Admitted what? She said we had labs there. We, Why was that controversial? Well, well, were we making anthrax? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe or new versions of it. I mean, we don't know. That's the point, Bill. It was buried. Come on. I'm surprised that you... you I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know that. You're right. Well, we all have gaps in our knowledge. And of course, that's one of the key problems. We've got big gaps in our knowledge because it's quite clear that our governments don't want to tell us the truth. So let's hop across. Uh, the subject is uh, Gaza. But the real information is what the UK government did not want to say about military operations from Cyprus. And I want to thank uh, this article from Europe Reloaded. UK government blocks MPs' questions about Gaza-related activity at its Cyprus base. And uh, what does this connect into? Well, a unique story for Reloaded, uh, Matt Kennard and Mark Curtis, um, they question an MP who's talking 
talking about a totally something totally unacceptable in democracy. It's talking about the RAF sending transport planes from Cyprus to Tel Aviv. And in the article, it's also mentioning SAS uh, movement. So what's important here? Well, there's Cyprus and we can obviously see the proximity uh, to Israel. So an easy distance for that. Uh, but this man features in the article, Kenny McCaskill, MP East, East Lothian. Um, I put down a number of parliamentary questions concerning what military support the UK is providing to Israel and the role of RAF Akrotiri in the supply of military equipment. And then he gets a reply. Your question has been queried because it's subject to a block by government. He was told in an email, the department, that was actually the Ministry of Defence, has stated it will not comment on operational matters at this base. And Kenny McCaskill said, um, I have never experienced such a block on asking parliamentary questions before. Uh, the failure to call for an immediate ceasefire is bad enough, but any complicity uh, raises issues of participating in war crimes. We need openness and transparency by our government. This is not in our name. Now, I encourage people to go and read this article, but at one point it links to D-notices. And uh, let's just have a look at where the article takes people. Uh, it's back to the socialist worker. Now, apologies, I haven't got a date on this, but it's a couple of weeks ago at least. British state tries to cover up its military operations in the West, uh, sorry, in the Middle East. Uh, socialist workers defied a denotice to the media, a state instruction to remain silent. And it says the email was an advisory notice from the Defence and Security Media Advisory Committee. It said reports have started to appear in sub-publications claiming that UK special forces have deployed to sensitive areas of the Middle East and then linking the deployment to hostage rescue evacuation operations. And uh, it goes on to say that denotice continued. Uh, may I take this opportunity to remind editors that publication of such information contravenes the DSMA notice code. I therefore advise that claims of such deployment should not be published nor broadcast without first seeking defence and security media advice. Now, the socialist worker was very clear it wasn't going to adhere with that uh, but the key point being made here is that the UK public are simply not getting the information they need to understand what is going on in the conflict zone and indeed what the uh, UK's military commitment is. Not something to be debated in Parliament, not something to be debated with the UK public. So who's running the country? I'll leave our audience to think about that. Now, let's switch topic and uh, bring in Mark. And uh, you're going to bring us on to the subject of climate change. And these, of course, are all globalist policies which are going on under the smokescreen of these horrific wars in Ukraine and Gaza. Yeah, in a way, this is the war against truth because myriad points of view are not allowed. No dissent is allowed. And this is the third week in a row I've been covering this in earnest in the interest of continuity. Very important. And things are becoming a little more formalized. I'm expanding on things I've talked about in the recent past. Here, this first slide, we have the Yale University ClimateConnections.com as the source. Here's the headline, eight key takeaways from the new National Climate Assessment. The, the National Cl Climate Assessment is an ongoing thing. It's the fifth one. We're on number five. And it's created by the federal government, a U.S. Congressional Federal Steering Committee appointed by the Subcommittee on Global Change Research and comprising representatives from all sorts of government agencies is behind this. The administrative agency for this fifth report is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the illustrious body, is also involved. And I can just very briefly outline what those eight points are. Uh, this starts out, the U.S. has made progress in reducing heat-trapping carbon pollution. Note the language, heat-trapping carbon pollution. A constituent, a natural constituent of the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, is now officially a pollutant. Um, extreme weather caused by climate change is harming U.S. residents in every region. According to this assessment uh, released just this 
this month, November 2023. That's the fifth assessment. And there's a lot of emphasis now, and some of it could be true, depending on the context, that human health is being heavily impacted by climate change. Uh, The effects of heat, extreme cold in some ways, flooding, droughts, uh, and so on and so forth. But uh, number two, the U.S. is disproportionately responsible for climate change. So the U.S. is really kind of the boogeyman here. The report begins with a discussion of climate trends, noting that human-caused global warming has heated the planet by about 1.1 degrees Celsius, 2 degrees Fahrenheit. I still fail to see the significance of that increase, but there it is. Uh, Since the late 1800s, over that period of time, that strikes me as a very small increase. Of course, they argue otherwise. Cumulative U.S. climate pollution over that period is responsible for about 17% of global warming to date, even though the U.S. only accounts for 4% of the world population. Number three of eight, U.S. climate pollution is falling, but not fast enough. Number four, extreme weather is getting more frequent and severe. Heavy precipitation, heat waves, drought, flooding, wildfires, hurricanes, and of course, like I say, a lot of emphasis on how it impacts the elderly and other human beings. Uh, Moving on, number five, climate change is worsening inequality. We have a little PC in there. Number six, climate change is bad for the economy. Uh, Seven, green jobs are booming, we're told. And number eight, we still have options. And I need not go into detail right now. I'm kind of giving a broad overview of what that assessment's talking about. Now, this is a carryover from last week. Uh, The World Resources Institute is very heavily involved in the same sort of things. The State of Climate Action 2023, I mentioned in passing last week, I'll give a little bit more detail. It's interesting to note that the World Resource Institute Global Board of Directors has a lot of bankers. Let's look at that first slide again. Um, A lot of uh, people involved in banking and uh, large corporations. Kathleen McLaughlin is executive vice president uh, of chief sustainability officer, Walmart Incorporated, president of the Walmart Foundation. She's a member of the World Resource Institute Board of Directors, as is Michael Meebach, chief executive officer, MasterCard, Some of these names might be a little difficult. Mari Pengestu, also a member of that global board of directors. She's with the World Bank. Jennifer Scully-Lerner, Goldman Sachs, and Pamela Flaherty, vice chair, and she's with Citibank. It's the City Foundation, C-I-T-I as it's spelled, of course. So you have a lot of bankers and big corporate wonks involved in the WRI board of directors. And this is a little bit more detail on that report published ahead of the final phase of global stock take. The State of Climate Action 2023 offers a roadmap that the world can follow to avoid increasingly dangerous and irreversible climate impacts while minimizing harms to biodiversity and food security. It translates the Paris Agreement's 1.5 Celsius temperature limit into 2030 and 2050 targets across sectors that account for roughly 85% of global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Power sources, buildings, industry, transport, forests and land, food and agriculture covering a wide gamut, as well as those focused on the scale up of technological carbon removal and climate finance. The report then assesses collective global progress and highlights where action must urgently accelerate this decade to limit warming to that 1.5 Celsius target. Um, The State of Climate Action 2023 finds that global efforts to limit warming to that 1.5 Celsius are failing across the board uh, with recent progress made um, on every indicator except um, electric excuse me, except electric passenger car sales lagging significantly behind the pace and scale that's necessary to address the climate crisis. So uh, they're, they're pretty jittery that they're not making the progress that they want to make. 
Uh, this year's State of Climate Action finds that progress made in closing the global gap in climate action remains woefully inadequate. As I noted, 41 out of 42 indicators assessed are not on track to achieve their 2030 targets. Um, with this set of laggards, efforts to end public financing for fossil fuels, dramatically reduce deforestation, and expand carbon pricing systems experience the most significant setbacks to progress in a single year relative to recent trends. So that gives a, a somewhat more detailed view compared to last week as to what the state of climate action 2023 is about and what the two reports I've mentioned today are all pointing toward is the COP28, and that's the 2023 UN Climate Change Conference, as we're showing here, or COP28. It convenes in Dubai, United, United Arab Emirates, the 30th of November. So it's coming up, and it's going to last all the way through the 12th of December. And of course, as I mentioned, uh, the United Arab Emirates has been criticized for hosting COP28 because it's one of the great uh, climate abusers, we're told. So that's a little more detail on where this is headed for now. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. And all serious stuff, because that agenda drives so many policies that are really beginning to affect and adversely affect people across the world. Well, let's uh, move on to happier things. If you like what the UK column is doing and you'd like to support us, then please subscribe or donate. We can only do what we do with your financial support. And it's been utterly tremendous that we've had the support we have over previous years, which have have got us to where we are now. We'd like to expand from here. That needs uh, more subscribers. And so we're going to say, if you know somebody who you think might enjoy UK Column, then do give us a mention. Uh, of course, you can also go into the shop and make some purchases. And those UK Column membership gift, gift vouchers are available and perhaps particularly good for Christmas. At the end of the day, what we're putting out is designed to be shared. We want to get information and facts out. And uh, so information going out on these channels. Uh, but of course, you can also share it with your friends and colleagues, because getting the truth out if the uh, legacy media is not going to do it is very important. Now, Alex, I'm going to hand over to you. You've got some mentions and corrections to make. A correction from me first. Uh, I mentioned uh, last week this uh, newsletter, which is uh, one of an excellent series produced by the Scottish Union for Education regarding a four-year-old uh, daughter uh, of the writer um, or the friend of the writer being very distressed by having to be taught by a man-woman and being forced to lie that it was a, a woman. Uh, I mentioned that, or I suggested that the author was Stuart Waiton, who chairs the SUE, uh, but the piece was actually written by Kate Deeming. I'm uh, happy to clarify that. Uh, regarding the letter to the king, which I found, uh, uh, featured last time, uh, Mark Sexton has done an excellent job of pulling together uh, all of this information. Uh, but it's important to point out that he's basing himself on uh, the work of many people who have spent years bringing out of obscurity the constitutional situation. And in particular, Edward Fitzgerald uh, should be mentioned there uh, as, as somebody whose work has contributed to this moment where we could say constitutional awareness is mainstreaming. We might even get into mentioning royal assent and the tricks played with that later in this episode. And that was unthinkable just a few years ago. Uh, one uh, notification uh, and a call for support from us as well from me, Richard D. Hall, the unrivaled one-man documentary maker and a uh, very fearless investigator, as well as being a very polite one, despite how he's being made out now by the BBC's uh, trolling system, has put up, and it will be in the show notes, of course, his latest episode, uh, pointing out that he is having to go to court with his hands tied behind his back. Um, the uh, families who seem to have been put up to it by the BBC, who are um, uh, suing him uh, because he has questioned on the basis of some quite solid arguments whether they were actually present in the Manchester arena during the bombing some years ago, uh, they have put together to the judge how they want the case to proceed. And they've suggested they only need four days to Richard Hall's estimate of 10. And the basis of that is <clears throat> they're expecting the judge to uh, to give them an imprimatur that Richard D. Hall will not be allowed to mention evidence. And, you know, e even if you would want to make him out to be somebody as bad as a Nazi, how, in the, how were the Nazis tried at Nuremberg? Evidence was brought forward. Uh, Richard D. Hall is going to have that uh, 
taken from him, or even more recently, the David Irving case. Uh, it was all slogged out in court. Not this time. It's such shaky ground, it seems, that Richard D. Hall is being told, you know, almost as if he were a rapist trying to relive a rape in court. No, no, you mustn't question any of the established facts. It's an undoing of English law where, of course, we have discovery and every fact has to be proven rather than just taken as read by the judge. He's in desperate need of financial support as well. So if you go to his website from the link we provide in the show notes, you'll be able to show your support to that. It's not just about Richard Hall. It's about the whole of English law here. OK, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, just very quickly, it's wonderful to see UK column viewers taking action, writing letters to their MPs. So this one was sent in to us. It's a letter written to um, Mr. James uh, Sunderland, MP, and it's talking about the World Health Organization and treaties. And it's also mentioning Andrew Bridge and many other experts who are clearly not happy. So this particular individual is challenging their MPs. You can freeze the screen to read what they say. And uh, I'd also like to bring this one up on screen, which is uh, interesting. So basically, people who've been at Totnes with the light newspaper are finding a particularly unpleasant response from people in Totnes. Um, some questionable reporting in the Tot Totnes Times newspaper. And uh, this person is saying, why is the light being targeted in this way? Well, of course, the BBC started the rot uh, by attacking the light newspaper as if it was an unpleasant extremist organisation, which clearly it isn't. Uh, but I just wanted to say that the light is also putting out a, um, a compendium of its articles and editions, which is going to be available in a 200-page hardback. So if you want to give the light newspapers some more support, uh, you can look at that online and consider buying uh, their hardback compendium. Um, also, just want to mention Louise Collins from Liberty Tactics. Louise putting out some really good stuff. Uh, she's also been looking at this Telegraph published story entitled Transgender Teddy Bears Used to Indoctrinate Children Age 10. So do go and have a look at that. And uh, Mark, I'm very quickly going to pass you over here um, because you've got uh, a little comment on treaties and memorandums of understanding. This is all in relation to World Health Organization, but we're going to use it to introduce the guest who we will have in extra time. Mark, over to you very quickly, please. Uh, thanks, Brian. Yeah, James Roguski, the LA-based researcher on the World Pandemic Treaty and the International Health Regulations, I understand, is joining us. For extra, I talked to him last night to uh, go over some history and facts. And what we're showing here is something we'll discuss in more depth and extra. Um, the UK, the, the slide on the left part of this, or the item on the left part of this slide shows the UK's guidance on treaties and things like that, including procedures. And the uh, right part of this slide, uh, some of Roguski's comments, on May 27, 2022, and he'll outline this in more detail later, amendments to the IHR were adopted by the 75th World Health Assembly. Of course, that's part of the WHO, which is part of the UN. They can still be rejected, but that must happen before December 1st, 2023. That's coming right up. Very important. Have the public servants who are responsible for the proper handling of the amendments done their job? Maybe but I, that's James, have been unable to find any evidence to support that they have performed their duties properly. And he'll outline more of this later. But it's very important stuff because we're getting down to the, the nitty gritty in terms of getting involved and the public having some influence on at least slowing down this juggernaut. And I believe we have a short video that can whet the appetite for the viewers later. And then James can handle it later in conjunction with myself and the rest of us. So. Hey everyone, this is James Roguski. Today is November 24th, uh, 2023. It's Friday. And there's only about a week left for all of the heads of state uh, around the world, uh, 196 different nations that are party to the international health regulations, to send a simple letter to um, the WHO to reject the amendments that were adopted um, almost 18 months ago on May 27th, 2022. Um, what I'd like to do is um, actually give a little bit of additional information. I did an interview with Dan Aston Gregory down below. I hope you watch that as well. It'll give you all the background for all of this. And what I want to talk about is the information that's below that video about the law in the United Kingdom. 
because an interesting um, series of events have occurred in uh, the UK. And it starts, you know, back on May 27, 2022, when uh, the amendments were adopted, Liz Truss was the uh, foreign minister at the time until September 6, 2022, when she left to become prime minister. Uh, at that point in time, James Cleverly uh, became the foreign minister. And in September of 2022, a new document about the policies and procedures dealing with agreements and treaties and amendments and all that sort of stuff, you can read that down below, uh, laid out the procedures as to the manner in which these types of international agreements are supposed to be handled by the UK government. Well, um, James Cleverly has been in office for a little more than a year, but on November 13th, he was replaced by David Cameron. So you've had three separate people who were supposed to be overseeing uh, the handling of this new, relatively small international agreement. Well, that was a little taster of our guest. Um, James Rogowski will be with us for UK Column Extra at the end of the news. So if you want more information and you're a subscriber, join us then. I'll just add that we've also had uh, an email that's come in and it says that um, Save Our Rights and the UK Medical Freedom Alliance have just launched a last minute campaign to reject the amendment to Article 59 of the IHR that was adopted at the 26th uh, uh, WHA on May 2022. The time period for member states to uh, reject these amendments ends on the 1st of December this year. This is a precursor to the main campaign against the 30 plus amendments and the pandemic treaty that will launch in January. It then goes on to talk about some good news in relation to Estonia, uh, New Zealand and Slovakia. We'll make sure that one goes up on the uh, website. Now, let's um, go back over to you, um, Alex. And uh, what have you got here? Uh a groundbreaking moment in the constitutional history of the European Union may be at hand. The radical centre, uh, led by Guy Verhofstadt, many of our viewers will know him as a, as a man not afraid to wave his arms about and raise his voice. Um, this report, uh, two members of the European Parliament, has been voted on and by a narrow majority has passed. Uh, it's not a regular state, the EU, so that doesn't mean it's law. Let's have a look at the vote breakdown. 609 votes cast. 291 for, 274 against, 44 abstentions or no-shows. So that's quite a shocker. <clears throat> the only way this can be stopped now is by the interests of the member states who wrote the treaties in the first place, uh, coming together at the Council of the European Union, and particularly in the head of government format, the, the, uh, the European Council as it's called, and saying no to this. Uh, I'm beginning to doubt <laughs> whether they will have the guts to do that, because there, there's a moment developing now where a lot of the members of the European Parliament think that they have the, uh, the future of the European Union in their destiny. Qualified majority voting is the thing that they're wanting to abolish here. In other words, uh, e even if Germany and France don't want something, but all 25 other member states do, it would go ahead. Previously unthinkable. Uh, the, the very thing that Mrs. Thatcher stood against in the 1980s, as far back as the Fontainebleau Conference in 1984, ultimately that cost her her premiership, as we reported some years ago. Uh, a good breakdown of this is by the Czech blogger currently living in Finland, uh, Vít Kopetsky, whom I've mentioned before. This will be in the show notes. Look at uh, his summary here. Euro will be mandatory, so Sweden and Denmark forced to take it on, for example, and Poland and Hungary. Um, there will be a single president, not just a von der Leyen at the Commission and uh, 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 Metzola at the Parliament and so on, but no, uh, one instead of three. Lots and lots of gender guff. Uh, QMV, which is the you know the last line in the sand that the, the British Tories pretended to stand against, um, and this is after, of course, monetary union and military union have gone through, so it's it's the last resistance. Uh, a slimmed down commission that would just be like a regular government, and individual member states would be told to shut up about things that they didn't like. That's not all that's gone on in the European Parliament though. Uh, recently, uh, we're just going to see uh, a minute. It's Dutch with English subtitles. Uh, of uh, a group of members of the European Parliament uh, laying in hard to the e European Medicines Agency, having received an unsatisfactory reply from its uh, Irish head, Aimer Cook, regarding whether the EMA, the equivalent of the MHRA or the FDA, uh, ever had authority 
to go for mass COVID jabbing within the territory of the European Union based on its own EU law. Allereerst stelt de EMA expliciet dat zij de coronavaccins alleen en uitsluitend op de markt heeft toegelaten voor individuele immunisatie en absoluut niet voor beheersing van besmetting en absoluut niet voor het voorkomen of verminderen van besmettingen. En dit is vernietigend voor regeringen die vol op het campagneorgel zijn gegaan met de boodschap je doet het voor een ander. Niets daarvan klopt. Niet alleen had de EMA de vaccins helemaal niet toegelaten om besmettingen tegen te gaan, de EMA gaat nog verder en verklaart in haar antwoord, en ik citeer, EMA's beoordelingsrapporten over de toelating van vaccins benadrukken het gebrek aan gegevens over besmettelijkheid. Met andere woorden, de vaccins waren niet bedoeld voor het voorkomen van besmettingen en er zijn al helemaal geen gegevens die onderbouwen dat de vaccins helpen tegen besmettingen. So De Graaf and his associates, a uh, very good showing from Croatia and France among his swelling numbers of, of uh, co-authors, uh, pointing out several things there. By far the best breakdown is Defacal 2.0, written by uh, a gentleman who, who pseudonymously calls himself Epimetheus. Um, here's his plain language summary of the, the letter from the MEPs to Emma Cook at the EMA, saying you changed the rules. This was uh, a quick switch of a, of a regulation for a, for a 20-year-old directive uh, in EU law. Uh, you didn't follow. You didn't allow the manufacturers to follow the rules. It was all unlawful. Um, Ms. Cook replies, um, basically, none of your, none of, none of our business. She's not quite as rude as that, but she says, uh, look, the national authorities have the whip hand. Um, so it's circular reasoning, as we see on screen here. There is lots of passing the buck going on, um, but this is this is hardly um, surprising given the quality of, of politicians uh, that we have now. And as an example of that, we have a, a video. Uh, just a montage of two separate events from 20 years ago when uh, Leo Varadkar, who's now the Irish Taoiseach or Prime Minister, and Michal Martin, the deputy, uh, they're in a job share at the moment, Thornishtia, uh, when they were up-and-coming politicians and when their parties were in opposition, uh, they spoke to TV question times, um, uh, one on the panel and one from the floor, and were laying in hard to the Irish authorities at the, at the time for the testing, uh, for the use of untested uh, injections on children in previous pharmaceutical scares. Leo Varadkar has another topic, yes. How would the panel address allegations that the pharmaceutical industry tested vaccines on children without consent? These children should not have been used for vaccination trials at all. And I think it's unacceptable that they were. There we go. You couldn't really make it up, could you? Uh, Steve Kirsch, who's been consistently excellent, uh, rounds us off for now uh, by suggesting that on St Andrew's Day, November the 30th, we're going to have more. Uh, he replying to Dr McCullough, who says uh, it looks like it was COVID that's behind uh, internationally raised mortality. Kirsch says, no, we have its proof. We, we, we have isolated it to the fact of being the vaccine and not something else. This at a time when the European Commission, as you'll see in the show notes, is saying, um, no, we don't have any evidence that it was the jabs behind the mortality. We'll see what Mr. Kirsch comes up with. Alex, uh, thank you very much. And let's go straight um, back to Mark Anderson. Mark, you're looking at media, uh, but also births and abortions. Yes, we've often talked about, and we just got done talking about uh, COVID injections and things that are deadly to all human beings. And we talk about war and things of that nature, of course. But far and away, the most deadly thing in existence is the abortion industry, the arbitrary abortion industry. Think of it no differently than you would think of any other corporate, uh, corporate greed, corporate corruption, uh, corporate collusion with government. It's just the same, only it is the most deadly thing of all. Um, 500,000 abortions in the U.S. alone just in the first half of 2023, and that's according to a pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute. But here we have CNN, and I'll get through this fairly briefly, um, a completely deceptive story. You look up the headline, and this is just an example of media malpractice connected to something this serious, which makes it all the more significant. Here's the headline, births have increased in states with abortion bans, research finds. And it shows a cute foot of a newborn human being. And you think, well, this is a more soft focus, basic article that there are more births. But you read into it and you see something that you could almost describe as macabre. 
Uh, here it just basically begins. Nearly a quarter of people seeking an abortion in the U.S. were unable to get one due to bans that took effect after the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which was uh, a year ago this past summer. Uh, researchers estimate in the first half of 2023, states with abortion bans had an average fertility rate that was 2.3% higher than states where abortion was not restricted. As if it takes an in-depth study or it takes a genius to figure out that if you limit abortions, lo and behold, there might be a few more births. Wow, that really takes an intellect. Anyway, uh, moving on to this slide that we're looking at now, um, after the Dobbs decision, fertility rates increased most significantly in states with longer travel times to the nearest abortion providers, the new research found, including a 5.1% increase in Texas and 4.4% increase in Mississippi. Abortions have been trending up in the U.S. for years, but rising birth rates could indicate that that unmet need, that unmet need to get an abortion persists despite an increase in the number of abortions in the year post-Dobbs. And there's a quote here from a professor at the University of California. One might think that those data conflict, but in actuality, we've known that there are many people who still can't get abortions. So what we see, Brian, is the media saying, well, birth rates are up where abortions are more limited. But basically, uh, beyond the soft focus headline and photo, they're saying that's bad. And all it is is an unmet need. And um, if we would just meet the need to give people an abortion under any circumstances, uh, really with no, not necessarily with a compelling need, if we just not get in the way of the abortion industry, then those birth rates would, would uh, go back down. So the only, to conclude, the only reason birth rates are going up, they're saying, is that there's just not enough abortions and that need is not being met. And states that want to protect the pre-born are simply standing in the way if they, if they dare take any kind of real, lasting, genuine moral stand. And to summarize, here we have the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic organization, and they have a higher purpose and they save lives by purchasing ultrasound equipment for approved pregnancy centers, pro-life pregnancy centers. And it's not, uh, it's not solid data at this point, and there is some uh, debate going uh, both directions, but the claim is that some 90% of women, uh, had they seen an ultrasound, would not have had an abortion, and that it definitely dissuades women from having an abortion once they see the humanity of the child inside of them. And this last item is an interesting quote um, from a former um, uh, U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop: "Legislation to restrict abortion, legislation, excuse me, to restrict abortion, frequently gets shot down by the courts for failing to include an exemption." protecting the life or health of the mother. Uh, however, this article from catholic.com, disclosure there, cases in which a pregnancy may threaten the life of the mother are said to be extremely rare. Former U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop has famously stated, in my 36 years of pediatric surgery, I have never known of one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the mother's life. If toward the end of the pregnancy, complications arise that threaten the mother's health, her obstetrician will either induce labor or perform a cesarean section. His intention is to save the life of both the mother and the baby. That's a very important point. The baby's life is never willfully destroyed because the mother's life is in danger. That word willfully is very important. And that ties into the law of double effect, where the basic principle is that the physician will do his best to save the life of the child and the mother when complications arise. If the child dies, not willfully, but inadvertently, that's not the same thing as the abortion industry through Planned Parenthood, abortion on demand, uh, where it's a very profit-driven thing, profit-driven thing, and even selling um, infant, infant or fetal tissue in the process, a very illicit operation. So these principles, uh, Brian, simply do not get reported, and you see this twisted upside-down reporting instead. Uh, just another example tied to a very key issue of how the mass media cartel completely undermines the moral order. Back to you. 
Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, we're going to continue the theme of media playing with stories and how it presents things. This is The Telegraph, and a big thank you to Debbie, who uh, found this little nest of articles. We're going to do this very quickly. Here's the headline, Bowen, I was wrong on hospital story, but I don't regret one thing. Jeremy Bowen, the BBC international editor, has admitted his coverage of the alleged bombing of a hospital in Gaza was wrong but says he doesn't regret one thing. During a television interview, the veteran reporter said he was incorrect to have suggested uh, that the hospital was flattened in an explosion on October the 17th. The bomb apparently only landed in the car park, and so the damage was superficial. But let's look at what's in the article. Um, we suddenly find here over to the right uh, a comment. Hadar Seller, co-editor of Camera UK, which monitors reporting of, of Middle East affairs, said, Bowen's arrogant declaration he doesn't regret one thing about his misreporting the hospital as flattened and his claim he didn't rush to judgment, even though he amplified unverified claims, is a sad testimony to the standard of BBC journalism. But what we should really be looking at is the standard of the Telegraph journalism, because what they don't declare is this is Camera UK. And uh, this is formerly UK Media Watch and BBC Watch. And if we bring in some detail here, it says that Camera UK doesn't just monitor the media for bias, but proactively engages with journalists and editors to challenge false or misleading claims about Israel. So this is a lobbying group on behalf of Israel and the Israelis, which the Telegraph did not bother to identify. If we have a look at this uh, article here, also by The Telegraph, we've got BBC reporter downplays atrocities carried out by Hamas in Arabic language reports. And what they're saying is that the particular man concerned put out a report in English and one in Arabic, and those two were different. Uh, but over on the right, where the red line is, we can see a spokesman for campaign against anti-Semitism said BBC Arabic risks becoming more of a proper... Uh, propaganda outlet than a news service, and then Camera Arabic, the Committee for Accuracy in the Middle East. Uh, well, what are we talking about when we come on to Camera Arabic? Uh, well, surprise, surprise, we're back with the same lobbying group. So to us, it's becoming very clear that there are very powerful forces at work protecting the Israeli side. They can change what is written and how it's written, not only in our newspapers, but across the BBC and other media. And we believe that our audience should be aware of this. Let's just have a look at Sky reporting on the anti-Semitism demonstration which took place in uh, London. Thousands of British Jews and their supporters were led through the streets of London by celebrities. Here to condemn the rise in anti-Semitism since the start of the Israel-Gaza war. I'm out here today because Jews in this country feel scared. They feel under attack. Um, some people are scared to go to the workplace. They're scared to send their children to school. Racism in this country, especially when there's an incitement to hatred, is illegal. It's also immoral. It's also unpleasant. And, and I'm here to march against it because I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. There's going to be moderate people on pro-Palestinian marches and there's going to be and what I'm here to do is to encourage moderate people to stand up and have a voice. Among the crowd, Boris Johnson showed his support. Organisers had asked politicians to join them. But controversial far-right activist Tommy Robinson had been told he would not be welcome. Police had warned if he left this cafe to join the crowd, he'd be moved on. Why am I being dispersed? Why am I being dispersed? Tommy, why did you come when the organisers told you to stay away? I'm here to do my job as a journalist. I'm at work. I'm at work. He was led away and later arrested. A pat on the back from a supporter, while others were glad to see him go. He's trying to align himself with your cause. What would you say to him? This uh, march is about tolerance, it's about inclusion, it's about kindness. Anyone who wants to use it in order to exploit hate or sow division is not welcome. This was the largest march against anti-Semitism in Britain since the war began, and police were out in force. 
organizers say the pro-Palestinian demonstrations that have been held here in the capital in recent weeks have made London a no-go zone for British Jews. And they say it's a sad fact that many Jews feel London is no longer a safe place for them. Well, there's lots to be discussed in that report. Uh, I, I found it sad that I wasn't seeing any banners talking about uh, peace and ceasefires and stopping the killing. The subject was simply anti-Semitism. Um, but uh, the key bit is lots of ce celebrities to report that view and the astonishing claim that no Jewish person felt safe when uh, Mike Robinson and myself were up in the previous Palestinian demonstrations in the mi middle of big crowds in uh, Trafalgar Square, where indeed there were other Jewish people who said that they had experienced no fear and people in the crowds had been wonderful to them. So I'm just going to suggest that I think I'm beginning to see this game of manipulation which is being played on big bodies of people, whether you're Palestinians or you're Jewish, and what is the agenda to make everybody fr uh, frightened of each other. And on the subject, we better bring in the BBC because the BBC had this post from our old friend Mariana Spring, slick videos or more authentic content, the Israeli Gaza battles raging on TikTok and X. So here's the BBC ramping up the idea that people in UK at each other's throats on social media. But if you look over the to the right of the blue arrow, you will see the, uh, the uh, bias comes in because she chooses uh, the MP Andrew Percy, the vice chair of Conservative Friends of Israel group, to talk about what's happening. And um, the comment says much of the content being shared is problematically anti-Semitic. So never mind the death and destruction. We've now got the idea um, that Jewish community are not safe in UK. Uh, we've seen the opposite of that for ourselves in London. But the BBC will use Mariana Spring to ramp this up. And uh, we have shown this film clip before, but this is uh, just a little uh, graphic, uh, sorry, a meme. Um, but uh, a quote from uh, this lady, um, a former Israeli cabinet uh, member, where she's saying anti-Semitic, it's a trick. We always use it to stifle legitimate criticism of Jews and Zionist Israel. So that's one comment from the Jewish community. The BBC, of course, didn't talk about the big demonstrations in Ottawa that have taken place over the last few days. Where Orthodox Jews uh, were at, were actually campaigning for peace, but no reports. Uh, Alex, let's um, let's just uh, move on and come to you because, of course, big things happening in the Dutch elections. Yes, and after Dutch elections, it always takes a while for the dust to settle and coalitions to form, as in months. So don't expect anything definitive from me just now. And we're pressed for time too. But I thought I would, uh, to illustrate the <coughs> shock result from the Dutch election, I would bring on Politico because it conveys the um, odium and uh, disbelief of the establishment, not in this case in the Netherlands, but in uh, the EU blob as a whole. Far-right leader Geert Wilders wins Dutch election. Well, nobody wins Dutch elections because it's such a multi-party system. Instead, you top the poll, and he did with 37 seats out of 150, you know, an unprecedented uh, number uh, to get uh, more than a sixth of the seats for just one party. In fact, two other parties, uh, let's show the polling over a year, ending uh, on the day of the uh, elections to the Tweede Kamer, the House of Representatives last week. If we look over the course of a year, we see, for one thing, there's lots of parliamentary represented parties. And for another, if you see that some of the parties only start to exist halfway through this time period, such as uh, the lilac-coloured NSC, uh, one of the dissident parties that's uh, won big, uh, Peter Omertich's party, the um, uh, new social contract party, that only came into being in uh, September, end of August last year. Um, you can see that another of the dissident parties in the very light green, which has a peak in the middle of last year and then sinks back down again, that's the Burenburgerbeweging, the farmer citizen movement, very popular if you take a drive out into the polder in the Netherlands and see all the billboards and uh, that have been impromptu erected there on farmland. Um, they're another possible flash in the pan. It's a very unstable scene, but it is looking like uh, Mark Rutter's party, the VVD Liberals, might not even feature in the next coalition at this point. And you might have a whole coalition 
could even stay the course of a whole parliamentary term, though Dutch politics is too unstable to predict that certainly uh, with certainty anymore, uh, that, that the Rutter's people could be out of it. They're led by uh, Mrs. Yeshil Guznow. Rutter's uh, shuffled off the scene, possibly to become the next Secretary General of NATO. Uh, this next and final slide on the Dutch elections shouldn't confuse people. These are not geographical constituencies, I've pulled from Wikipedia. But certain things do surprise seasoned observers of the Dutch political scene, such as the uh, this is uh, by municipality which party topped the poll. It, it doesn't make any constituency figures. It just shows what went into the single pot to be divided among 150 seats. But the Bible Belt from southwest to northeast across the country has disappeared. Uh, the socialist north, uh, the, the solid red uh, patch has given way to a few red blobs. Um, there is a, a regional showing in the east where it's uh, Catholic farmland for the national uh, for the new social contract party of Mr. Omerzicht. Uh, and you can see on the left there uh, how many seats out of 150 each party got. And you have to look a jolly, well, lo jolly long way down before you see the Christian Democrats or the VVD. Um, uh, uh, who are you know the establishment parties of old, let alone the Socialist Party. They, these parties are more or less disappearing. They're becoming as small uh, as the religious special interest parties. So um, it's unprecedented times, and Mr. Wilders might yet end up being prime minister. Okay, Alex, thank you very much. Well, we must end the news there. A lot of information we know. There's a lot of uncertainty in the whole picture unfolding around us. UK column is going to do a very best uh, to, to give an opinion of what we think is happening. Uh, but as somebody has just said in our chat box, I just wish that the killing and the violence and the wars could stop. But that's not an easy request. And of course, this is the meat of it. We need to be taking uh, the lid off, lifting the stones to see the people who are causing the suffering worldwide. We must end there. Thank you all for joining us wherever you are in the world. For subscribers of UK Column, stay with us in a few minutes' time. We'll have UK Column Extra. And our special guest today is James Rogowski, who's going to be talking about matters to do with the World Health Organization Treaty. We'll see you in a few minutes.